Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good to have you all here on this uh, winter day. We take refuge in the fact that spring is coming. Good to have others of you listening online and uh, trust that you also be pointed to Jesus and encouraged today with God's word. You know, these days we have uh, cell phones and caller ID, and so this probably rarely happens to uh, many of you. Here at the church office, occasionally, um, somebody calls, uh, and they just start right in talking, um, and, and I'm racking my brain thinking, well, where have I heard that voice before? Sometimes I guess, and I say, well, is this so-and-so, and And sometimes I'm wrong. Uh, Sometimes I just ask, well, who's calling? You know, in our communication with people, whether it's uh, writing a letter the old-fashioned way with pen and paper, or or it's emailing or texting or talking with them on the phone, uh, we identify ourselves so that the reader or the hearer uh, knows um, exactly who is seeking to communicate with us. Um, It's... Common courtesy, but it's also necessary uh, so that the receiver doesn't end up thinking they got a message from somebody that was other than the one actually sending it. You know, in old-fashioned letters on pen and paper, typically uh, the writer would sign their name at the end of the letter. Uh, That's not so with our modern technology. Uh, We get emails and the sender is identified right there in the title line. Uh, If it's a call or text, we have um, caller ID And so we're used to knowing the identity of the source right up front. And in the uh, New Testament letters of the Apostle Paul, for instance, that was a pattern as well. And now we see that also in these letters from Jesus to the seven churches at Asia that are recorded in the book of Revelation. Jesus identifies himself up front in each of these letters. But he does so in a very interesting way by revealing something unique about himself at the beginning of each letter. It's kind of like if I was to start out my communication with someone by saying, well, hello, this is uh, the Maranatha pastor with less hair and seven kids. (laughs) Or or, this is the guy that lives on 41st Avenue in Moorhead and and owns an old Alice Chalmers tractor. Those things are unique about me, and so they identify and set me apart from somebody else. Well, as we look in Revelation chapter 2 today, Jesus addresses the Christian congregation at at Pergamum in in this unique way again. And so notice what he reveals about himself, which again sets him apart from anyone else. I invite you to look with me at at, uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. And uh, please stand in in, uh, in, uh, honor of God's word today. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food and sacrifice to idols and, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone, the new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word, to the church at Pergamum and to us. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to each of our hearts, uh, even as you uh, wrote this, in order that uh, you would address issues there. Uh, may we see the parallels in our own culture, in our church at times, Lord, in our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we start out then with Jesus' self-description there for Pergamum. Um, he describes himself here as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, a sword is a weapon that is used on the offensive. What's the advantage of a two-edged sword? Well, both sides cut, right? Uh, providing that they're sharp. And Jesus says here that he has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, there would certainly be others who would have two-edged swords that are sharp. But if we look back in chapter 1, where John was first describing this vision of the exalted Christ, while he is on the island of Patmos there, there he has said about Jesus in, in chapter 1, verse 16, that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now that is unique. Though this is not a, a literal picture, but it is a description of the authority of the words that come from the mouth of Jesus and of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This sword in his mouth, or from his mouth, Jesus said, says there in verse 16 also, that is the sword of my mouth. Um, and if there's some other scriptures we look at that have similar wording. For instance, you go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and there it says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The sword of God's word, you see, penetrates the innermost heart of our being. Not our physical being, but our spiritual being. And Hebrews 4.12 goes on then to describe it as uh, being able then to judge even the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The, the law of God, you see, cuts to the heart. It, it steers our conscience. It, it points out our sin and our desperate need then for a Savior. And, and thus leading us then to Jesus who died on the cross to save us from the consequences of our sin. But you see, for those who refuse to believe in Christ, there's another side to the sword. To them, it, it cuts with the edge of eternal condemnation. Think, for instance, about these words, uh, very familiar ones that come from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those words bring comfort to the hearts of those that believe in him, telling of how he is the way to heaven and, and preparing a place for, for them there. But for all who do not believe, there is, it says, no other way to the Father in heaven. One further thing that Jesus says about himself toward the beginning of this letter to the church at Pergamum, he says that he knows the city of Pergamum. 
and the congregation that dwells in it. He's not writing to them as a stranger, unfamiliar with his audience, but, but as one who is intimately familiar with them. He knows all about this city of Pergamum, and he knows every individual in this congregation. And so let's talk about the city of Pergamum. A uh, little geographical and historical background here. It's 50 miles north of Smyrna, um, which is what, the one that Pastor Ryan shared about last week, and 10 miles from the Aegean Sea. And, and uh, today it's, it's interesting about this uh, city that it's one of the best excavated cities of the Roman world. Excavations there include this massive theater able to seat 10,000 people that was built into the hillside there. At one time, this was the capital city of what is present-day Turkey. It was the center for four religious cults, and so it was really a stronghold for idolatry and worship of false gods of Greek and Roman culture. And high on a hill in Pergamum was this great throne-like altar to Zeus, the greatest of the Greek gods. It had at its base an engraving that depicted the various gods of Greece in victorious combat against the giants of the earth, and the Greeks thought of this then as the Greek civilization triumphing over barbarianism. Pergamum was also known as, as for, a, for a shrine there to uh, Asclepius, the, the, the god of healing, um, also designated as Soter or, or Savior, and this drew people from all over the world to come and see and, and to be healed there. And, and uh, it's, a, its symbol was the snake. <clears throat> and, and Pergamum was also especially known, though, as the official center in Asia for the imperial cult. That is, the worship of the emperor, the emperor of Rome, Caesar. Worship of him as deity. And it, was this, it was the first city then to actually build a temple to a living ruler. And in 29 BC, Caesar Augustus granted permission to have a temple built there to himself as the divine Augustus. Uh, of the seven cities mentioned then in Revelation, Pergamum was, was one where the Christian church was most destined to clash then with this business of emperor worship. To not join in with worshiping the emperor, was to instead then declare Jesus Christ to be the King of Kings, and, and that made Christians a target for those that held up Caesar as Lord. And so Jesus says about Pergamum, Satan's throne is there. And this possibly referred to that very visible throne-like altar to Zeus up there on the hill, but, but perhaps more likely to just the, this being the center of Roman emperor worship, which stood in direct conflict with belief in Jesus as Lord. The, the congregation at Smyrna that Pastor Ryan addressed about last week had been told that tribulation is coming. Well, in Pergamum, it was already here. Uh, there had already been someone who had been killed because of his witness um, to his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and this man was named Antipas. Antipas uh, and there is an uh, Herod Antipas mentioned. That's not the same one at all in Scripture. This one is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But what we're told here is that he was a faithful witness and he was killed because of that witness. And, and he was clearly known by this congregation and, and quite possibly maybe even the pastor um, or at least a leader within the congregation. There might have been others as well that were persecuted and even killed as well. But you know, when a leader is killed, um, it has kind of a ripple effect on those that are led. 
And, and that's really a typical tactic we've seen historically uh, with communism, for instance, in the world. Kill key leaders in a community and it strikes fear into the hearts of, of the masses so they grow silent and they submit. Well, that hadn't happened, though, at Pergamum. In spite of the martyrdom of Antipas, this congregation had continued to hold fast their belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As we look at the message, then, that Jesus has to the church at Pergamum, you look at verse 13 there, and he says this. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so Jesus, first of all, addresses some positives about this congregation. You hold fast my name there, that as you continue to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and declare him as such, and you, and you didn't deny the faith, even when Antipas was killed, they persevered, even while encountering extreme persecution. So think about some of the things they went through, and, and, and when we look at our own country, we probably don't see things to that degree, um, but it does seem that in our country there is a growing anti-Christian sentiment. At, at times, branding anyone who holds to a fundamental Christian beliefs as, as dangerous or enemies even of the state. And, and though we haven't seen it leading to martyrdom for the faith at this time, it's possible that could come. As we look back on the last three years, uh, we certainly have seen times where the state has taken kind of a strong-armed approach to any that wish, didn't wish to cooperate with their restrictions on businesses and houses of worship and things like that. We've also seen where the state has turned a deaf ear to those that for reasons of conscience uh, would refuse to get the vaccination. And, and there are other examples who think, as we think about what's going on in our country, in our world, uh, there's this growing surveillance um, done by, by government um, in in um, observing our private lives in various ways. We too live in challenging times to be a Bible-believing Christian. And these letters to the seven churches should remind us to expect persecution and, and to hold fast in, to our faith in Jesus and our trust in his word. Along with these positives that Jesus addressed at Pergamum, there were also some negatives that he must confront. And we see then that he mentions this, that some there were holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, you might remember something about the story of Balaam, and, and very likely what you remember is he was this Old Testament character that struck his donkey when it refused to go. And that resulted in God speaking through the donkey to Balaam. Well, there is much more to the story than that. Um, Balaam was a prophet of God that Balak, the the king of the Moabites, tried to bribe. He wanted to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And, and, Elam, or excuse me, and Balaam didn't uh, dare curse what God had said to bless. Uh, but he was still very tempted by Balak's increasing generous offer, and so he repeatedly reconsidered. But each time that he asked God what he should say, he was again told to bless the Israelites instead of curse them. However, what happened is that since he couldn't curse the Israelites directly, it seems that he came up with a plan to curse them indirectly. Uh, apparently, he taught Balak to encourage the Moabite women to entice the men of Israel, thus leading them into immorality and idolatry of the Israelites, and, and, that, and that then brought upon is, the Israelites God's judgment instead of his blessing. Balaam is referred to other places in Scripture as well, 
as, as he seems to be kind of a, a, a prototype, you might say, of corrupt teachers who betray believers in fatal compromise with worldly ideologies. And, and that's why Jesus refers to him here. It seems that some of the believers at Pergamum had decided that accommodation was the wisest policy, and they were open to compromising with other religions, and particularly in the areas of what they ate and, and who they had sexual relations with. Pagan food and pagan women became a temptation to believers at Pergamum to compromise God's word and, and join with them in their religious practices of worshiping other gods along with the worship of Jesus. You know, Satan still has tricks today to get us Christians that live in a pluralistic society to decide to compromise our beliefs and, and to do things like looking at other religions as harmless or even as true as our own. Jesus also has another thing to say about the congregation at Pergamon, <clears throat> that is this negative, some hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And remember from the letter that we had to the church at Ephesus, the Nicolaitans were a sect that claimed to be Christian, yet openly indulged in eating meat offered to pagan gods and, and engaging in sexual immorality. And so here in Pergamum too, there were those that were listening to the Nicolaitans and compromising in those areas. We see then this letter followed with an ultimatum to the congregation. Jesus says, repent. Those who have held to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are called to repent and turn back from such belief and practice. And the rest of the congregation also is called to repent of not taking action against them and addressing this and instead allowing teaching and practice like that to continue among them. And I believe this is really a word to churches in our country today as well, to turn back from compromise that is being made in teachings and practices regarding human sexual morality and gender issues, and turn back from being lured by sensuality around us. Turn back also from considering other religions as merely alternate ways to heaven. Turn back to God's word as the only sure guide of matters in faith and practice. It's a call to parishioners then to speak out if you see your church leaders or fellow believers compromising on things that God's word says are wrong. Jesus' ultimatum to the congregation at Pergamum says, Repent, or I will come soon and will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember that two-edged sword is the word of Jesus, the word of God. The offensive weapon against false teaching, you see, is truth. And the reminder here to the congregation at Pergamum, which had experienced martyrdom at the hands of the Roman rule, is that the power of the sword really rests not with the rulers of Rome, nor with Satan, the ruler of this world. But the power of the sword rests with Jesus' words. And he says, and here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's an urgency to the words of Christ, and that is to respond now if you're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, time could run out when you no longer will hear. And then lastly, there's this letter ending with a promise, a promise to the one who conquers or the one who overcomes. And you know, we who live up here in the Northland understand what it means to persevere under difficulty and to overcome. Winter has seemed kind of relentless here. Um, but we still press on because we know that there's an end coming sometime in the next couple months. There's going to be spring, right? And then summer ahead. You know, when I start to think about uh, 
that I'm getting too old for winter up here, and I would like to join the snowbirds down south. I, I'm reminded of a feature story I, I saw on the Fargo Forum just a week or so ago. It, it was titled, Three Old Guys Gear Up for a Snowmobile Trek to Alaska. And the article told about, maybe some of you saw this, there were three men, age 65, 70, and 72, that began on Monday, on March 6th, a 4,000-mile trek with snowmobiles from Grand Rapids, Minnesota, to Fairbanks, Alaska. They're each pulling some large sleds with various supplies, including food and snowmobile parts and 30 to 40 gallons of, of, of gas apiece. And sometimes we'll be able to stay in motels, other times they're actually going to be camping in tents. And if all goes okay, they expect to make it to their destination in a month. I can't imagine the obstacles they will have to overcome. All of that just to get to a destination where it's still winter. <laughs> well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a much more to look forward to than they do. We, if we persevere in our trials and we keep our faith in Jesus, we will reach a glorious destination. And Jesus gives his promise to the overcomers at Pergamum there in verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let me just explain a couple things about that. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. You, you recall how God supplied the people of Israel with food in the wilderness for 40 years. And he gave them bread from heaven, enough for a day at a time. Manna, it was called. Well, we don't see that direct provision these days but one day in glory, God will again feed his people who have overcome with food from heaven. And then he says, I will give a white stone. And this one's kind of fascinating to understand. In the ancient world, there were small white stones, you know, or pebbles sometimes used. Um, they'd be marked with somebody's name on it or with some kind of a password. And they would be then handed to somebody to be used as admission tickets to a special banquet. And here, of course, then Jesus is referring to the ultimate banquet feast yet to come in heaven someday. And only those who receive the white stone with a new name written on it will be admitted to the never-ending messianic feast in heaven. Well, this white stone, of course, is figurative, but it reminds us that those who trust in the grace and forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ are the ones who are admitted. And again, then, God's word contains here both promise and warning. Not all will get in. Only those who live in repentance and of, of their sin and faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord have the security of that eternal, wait, eternal home waiting for them someday. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's press on, trusting in Christ alone. Amen. Lord God, we just thank you for your word to the church at Pergamum and to us today. Lord, you know each one of us, even as you knew each one there. You know the situations that we live in and the, and the influences that are there and the temptations that come our way. And Lord, you know if, if there are ways in which we are compromising in our practice, uh, in our lives, or in what we say we believe. And we pray that you would lead us to ever look to you and to your word for guidance in all of those things as we live in a challenging time in our life, Lord. And in this country, Lord, we pray. We pray for revival in this land. We pray that that would begin in each of our own hearts and would spread, Lord, 
as believers all over America would look to you in times of challenge. And Lord, we just entrust that the future is in your hands. And Lord, we especially take comfort in the promises you give us here that he who overcomes, you have a reward for us someday in glory. And we look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen.